it, but I didn't. Um, Okie dokie. Um, so, did you guys read the letter to Raleigh? How'd you find it? Hard, easy, intermediate? Intermediate? Yeah. Yeah, intermediate is how I find it, too. So I think that's, that's fine, if you're finding it that way. Um, let's, I think what we should do, though, um, did, did you guys bring the handout from yesterday, the syllabus slash handout? Um, let's start uh, by looking just as a way to start thinking about allegory, which we will be thinking about a lot. Um, look at Sonnet 23, the Milton Sonnet, that begins, Methought I saw my latest vows at Saint. Oh, Ben, I wonder whether he's coming. Um... Actually, two bins. Huh, both bins aren't here. Uh, so, Methought I Saw My Latest Bows at Saint. Uh, this is basically the last sonnet that Milton wrote. Um, and the thing you have to know that I already mentioned um, in class last time, but that is going to be an issue for Milton, is uh, the fact that in the 1640s he went blind. Um, that is, he was in his um, early 40s when he lost his sight. Um, there are, Oliver, do people know who Oliver Sacks is? Um, famous, he, he became famous for a book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Um, he's a neurologist who writes a lot about very bizarre uh, neurological symptoms that come from various brain um, disorders that can, that can cause those symptoms. And what's very interesting about them is the, um, the things you can discover about neurotypicals, um, as the uh, phraseology goes, from looking at various things that can go wrong. Um, so he has some really interesting things about blindness, and one of the things that he um, shows or tells or boasts is that um, people who lose their vision after about a decade of blindness, um, there's, they will go one, or, one of two ways. Some people will forget what it means to see. Um, this is especially true if you go blind in early childhood. That is to say that they will lose all visual memory. Um, you know, if you close your eyes, you can still think of a sunny day in Florida as opposed to a horrible day in Waltham. Um, but it may be that, that if you were to go blind, after about 10 years, you wouldn't be able to remember even the experience of seeing what light was like, what colors were like. You would still know the meanings of the words, because blind people do, um, but you would have no pictures in your brain, um, no pictures in your mind. And um, about, I think about half of blind people, maybe a little bit more, um, lose, after they've been blind for a long enough time, lose all visual um, uh, processing in the brain. Um, the reason being that those parts of the, of the brain are now being reused um, in order to make all the other senses more acute. Um, so you probably know about that kid um, who died recently, the blind basketball player. Um, he lost his eyes uh, when he was um, two or three years old. You can see him on YouTube. It's quite amazing. He lost his eyes when he was two or three years old. And um, and he completely forgot what it meant to see, but what he would do is click. He'd just go, and he was so good. He was like a bat with echolocation. 
and he was so good by hearing the echoes of the clicking he would do as he went around. Um, sorry? Is it so sonar? Yeah. Um, that he could actually ride a bike, um, not with training wheels, a two-wheeler, um, on a, on the street outside his house where there was some traffic. You know, he wasn't riding, he wasn't like a New York City bike messenger, but he was he was riding where there were cars and where there were other bike riders and where there were kids playing, and he could play basketball. Um, he knew where the hoop was and he could hear where the hoop was through sonar through through this clicking. And he was um, not the best basketball player in the hood, but not the worst either. Um, and people chose him when they were choosing sides. Um, but he couldn't see at all. And what happened was um, his brain was rewired. Um, he had no memory whatever of what seeing was like. Zilch. Um, and he didn't feel that he was missing anything because it would be like, what's it like for you guys not to have a sense of the, mag of the Earth's magnetic field? Um, doesn't that bother you? We, others, we feel the magnetic field. It seems so impoverished that you don't. Um, but that's what he felt about sight. He didn't see that there was anything. He didn't, quote, see, unquote. He didn't hear that there was anything missing. So, so half or more of people who are profoundly blind um, for a decade or more lose all visual um, uh, memory. Others, and Milton is one of those others, um, are incredibly good at preserving visual memory um, to the extent that their visual memories even get heightened. And one of the interesting things is people who lose all visual memory and people um, who heighten all visual memory, it turns out they're roughly equally good at getting around places that they know. Um, one of the things that Sachs talks about is um, there's someone who'd lost all visual memory um, who was working on his roof at night. Um, and it didn't matter that it was night. Um, you know, he was perched on top of his roof, he was fixing the shingles, um, and he was doing it through echoes, and it just didn't matter. Um, another guy who had very intense visual memory also happened to work on his roof at night. Again, it didn't matter that it was night. Um, what mattered was he knew, he remembered almost photographically. He, did, he had developed, after he went blind, a kind of ex post facto photographic memory. And he knew where every shingle was. He could picture it in his mind. He just thought and thought and thought. So um, I wonder if the military can find use for those kinds of people. The military can find use for, for men who stare at goats. They can find use for <laughs> um, But... Um, <coughs> There's a website, it's G-O-A-T-S-E, I think, I never went. But, um, so, the, um, why are you guys looking at each other? Um, the, uh, we, we don't, our generation, we all know about these things. Um, the, um, Milton is in the intensely visual mode of the blind. But, and that's something that we'll be thinking about in Paradise Lost. Um, if you look at um, this sonnet, Sonnet 23, um, look at it um, remembering that Milton is blind. So the first line of this is um, he's talking about his wife who has died. And what you have to understand from the first line, methought I saw my latest vows at saint brought to me like Alcestis from the grave. The really important word there is saw. He has a dream, and the amazing thing about the dream is, my God, I saw her. I never saw her in real life. He met her and married her, and she died all after he went blind. 
but then after her death he has a dream and in the dream he dreams he he dreams visually his dream is a visual dream and in his dream for the first time he saw her in a dream and he thought I saw my latest visit saint as you will see in Paradise Lost um, Adam will also have a dream um, of the creation of Eve um, he will think that he sees his spouse his new espoused saint his spouse um, that's a dream um, but it's a dream that he then wakes up from and she's there that's, you will see that in Paradise Lost um, Spencer Milton there is picking up something in Spencer but back to as you'll see also but back to this sonnet so it's an amazing thing I, I dreamt that I saw my dead wife and it's not like a sighted person dreaming that it's someone who never saw her now dreamt that he saw her methought I saw my latest spouse at saint brought to me like Alcestis from the grave and I'll just quickly remind you of the myth of Alcestis um, which Euripides has a play about which is Alcestis was the wife of King Admetus and Admetus is told he's going to die but um, he's offered a deal by um, Pluto which is if, you, if someone else will die for you um, then uh, you can live. He says, I'm too young to die. And Pluto says, okay, find, find a substitute. So he asks all the people in his kingdom, um, who volunteers to die for me? Uh, this also is going to be relevant to Paradise Lost, where Milton is going to turn this into the Christian story. Who volunteers to die for Adam and Eve? Um, but of course, no one volunteers to die for him. He says, but I'm giving you an order. You'll do well if you volunteer to die. And they say, well, actually, we won't. We'll be dead. Um, so he can't and then he goes to his parents and says um, if one of you is willing to die for me then I'll live and they say no sad that you're going to die but our lot, my life is more important than yours loath as I am to admit it nevertheless I'm not going to die for you and he's all in despair and his wife says what's wrong his wife Alcestis says what's wrong and he explains and she says well I'll do it so she shows great great love to him and he says, wow, that's great, would ya? And she does. And then after she dies, he feels guilty. You can see why. And um, right around that time, Hercules is traveling through his kingdom. And he entertains Hercules. And Hercules says, you look a little bummed. Um, why? And he finally decides to tell Hercules what the story is. And Hercules says, she did that for you? And he says, yes, and I feel terrible about it. And Hercules says, let me see what I can do. And you can guess the rest. Um, he goes down to um, Hades, and he rescues her and brings her back to life. And so it's a happy ending, um, one of the few happy endings in, among the Greek tragedies. So, this is, so you can feel guilt in Milton here, that somehow um, he's the survivor. He's got survivor's guilt, just like King Admetus did. His wife died. But now look, methought I saw my latest spouse at Saint brought to me like Alcestis from the grave whom Jove's great son, that is to say Hercules, to her glad husband gave. He's so happy to see her again, rescued from death by force, though pale and faint. So it's as though she came back to him the way Alcestis did. And then he says, Okay, that was Alcestis, the wife of Admetus, 
mine, my wife, this is grammatically a little bit hard, so I'm just going to give you the grammatical structure, mine, and then you have to skip to get to the predicate. Mine is the subject, and then the predicate is came. So mine came vested all in white. That's the basic structure of the um, sentence that we're about to come to. It's a hard sentence, harder than, I think, harder than anything in Paradise Lost. But mine, as whom washed from spot of childbed taint, purification in the old law did save. So mine, like one who, having given birth, had to take the ritual bath, the mikvah, um, and was therefore washed from childbed taint. Mine, like one who was purified in the old law of the Hebrew Bible, Mine, such as yet once more I trust to have full sight of her in heaven without restraint. That is, I trust that when I die, I will have full sight of her. Um, so she came like one who had, who had just taken a ritual bath, and therefore, as you're going to see, um, is now wearing pure white robes. Or the way she came, the way I think, I trust that I will see her in heaven. Mine... Looking the, looking the way she would look in either of these two cases, after a mikvah or in heaven, mine came vested, came dressed all in white. So yeah, he can see her. She's wearing white, like a bride, like purity. Mine came vested all in white, pure as her mind. Her face was veiled. Why? He's never seen her. So her face is veiled because he doesn't know what her face looks like. Um, why else is her face veiled metaphorically if she's all in white? She's a bride. She's a bride. So the fact that her face is veiled allows him to, or allows his dream to turn her into the veiled bride, the bride who is veiled. Mine came vested all in white, pure as her <coughs> mind. Her face was veiled, yet to my fancied Sight Again, it's not real sight. It was a dream of vision. Her face was veiled, yet to my fancied sight, I fancied that I could see love, sweetness, goodness in her person shined, so clear as in no face with more delight. So I could see those things in her, love, sweetness, goodness. I saw them clearly as you would see the face of one you delighted in absolutely. That's how clearly I saw those things. So that, just for a moment, I want to underline that that's the allegorical moment here, that she appears to him as the very appearance of love, sweetness, and goodness. It, he doesn't see her face, but what he sees shining through her, what she sees her not more than representing, somehow embodying, personifying in her person shined, is love, sweetness, goodness. So take that as the first idea that we have to put into our minds in this course about what allegory is. Here is a person who is embodying those things but not representing them. That is to say, the really important thing to see here is it's not 
um, oh, here is a figure who stands for greed. And you can tell that he stands for greed because he's walking around counting his money and looking at, um, at all the jewels and gold on the ground. No, that's a very old and standard idea of allegory. But here you get a different idea, that it's not that, that she represents love and sweetness and goodness, it's that somehow she makes them present. She is the presence of those things. When she's there, they're there. And that is something we're going to insist on again and again, that for some allegorical figures, the ones we care about most, it's not that they represent something abstract, it's that when they're there, that abstraction suddenly becomes real. And that's what happens with her. So her face was veiled, yet to my fancied sight, love, sweetness, goodness in her person shines so clear as in no face with more delight and then the terrible sad ending, but oh, as to embrace me she inclined. So now we know he's lying in his bed, so she bends over to embrace him, but oh, as to embrace me she inclined, I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. So he wakes from the dream to embrace her back, but she's unreal. She only existed in his dream. Okay, so I wanted us to start with that, and now um, let's turn, unless you have comments about this or questions, but we should turn to the letter to Raleigh. Okay. Um, so, um, if you read the notes, which um, I would say in general, uh, as you're reading Spencer, don't read notes. It's like the first time you read Shakespeare, which is... Um, you really want the whole gestalt, and it really doesn't matter if you miss details. Um, you'll get much more used to reading Spencer and to learning his language, um, learning what it is that he's up to, if you just kind of do a Middlebury College total immersion course in Spencer. Um, and uh, the, the same is true of reading Shakespeare the first time you read him. If you try to understand everything, you'll understand nothing. Um, really what you want to do is get a sense of the flow, and it will become clear to you by itself. And fortunately, great as book one of the Fairy Queen is, it's the least great book of the Fairy Queen. Um, it's it's um, frequently the only one that's ever taught, um, because it's uh, very, um, by in Spencerian terms, the allegories are very clear, um, but it's perfectly fine to read through book one um, without looking at the notes on the whole. Major things um, you'll learn in class, will explain in class. Um, look at the notes when you really want to know, when something really arrests you, but it will take you forever, and it's pointless, and it's probably bad for you to try and figure out what's going on line by line and to make sure you understand every line. It's much better just to keep reading. Um, like watching Shakespeare on stage. No one, even Shakespeareans, can follow everything that's being said on stage. But it doesn't matter, uh, because what matters is the flow of the play. And if you get 90% of it, you get all of it. Um, so um, look at the letter to Raleigh. And the thing to know about it was that this was, um, he published The Fairy Queen. He was a very um, well-known poet when he published it, but The Fairy Queen was a dazzling brand new thing that no one was expecting. 
and he wrote a letter to um, Walter Rowley, who was sort of a patron to him, um, explaining the poem, and um, his publisher and he and Rowley and various other people um, decided that it would be good to append that letter to the first edition of The Fairy Queen, the first three books of The Fairy Queen. Um, seven years later, when he published the next three books of The Fairy Queen, he, uh, The Fairy Queen was such a resounding success and so famous that um, he didn't need this letter, but it's still a very useful thing to have. So, um, it is to the right noble and valorous um, Sir Walter Raleigh, Knight, uh, etc., and he says, Sir, knowing how doubtfully all allegories <coughs> may be construed, um, what would the word doubtfully there mean, do you think? Vaguely. How vaguely, how uncertainly, uh, that is that as you try to construe an allegory, you may be in doubt as to what it means. Um, knowing how doubtfully all allegories may be construed. And this book of mine, which I have entitled The Fairy Queen, being a continued allegory. So does anyone have a sense of what the word allegory means? Is, do I take that as a no? Yeah. Doug. I mean, I, well, like characters stand in for some, well, in this case, like a virtue, I guess, but... I don't know. There's some sort of <coughs> like philosophical, <coughs> excuse me, like philosophical conflict or something that the, the conflict of the characters represents. Maybe. Okay, good. Um, so, do you guys know Edward Gorey? Um, so, one of most of you don't. Um, all right. Well, allegories are frequently what you will um, you can think of them, or you can start thinking of them in terms of of fables. So, if you think of um, the fable of the um, the raven with a piece of cheese and the fox below wants that piece of cheese. That's an Aesop's fable. Um, and so the fox starts praising the raven for... Um, first asks for a piece of cheese, the raven says no. And then the fox starts praising the raven for um, his beautiful singing voice and says, please let me hear you sing something. And the raven is flattered. Um, and opens his mouth to sing, and the piece of cheese falls um, down, and the fox eats it and goes scampering off. And the moral is don't believe flatterers. Um, they only want something from you. Um, so in that, if you thought of that fable as an allegory, the fox would stand for flattery, and the raven would stand for vanity. That is someone who believes um, flattery. Um, and so you have a little story. It's a fun story. You learn something from it. But then you can get a moral out of that story by seeing these individual creatures as actually standing, as you put it philosophically, standing for, for some general and abstract principle. Um, it, the uh, famous allegories in England, and this is one of the things that Spencer's thinking of, um, there's a play called Everyman. Um, and the protagonist of that play is a man named Everyman. So who do you think Everyman stands for? Everyman. Good. Yeah, this is an easy one. Stands for Everyman. Um, and Everyman um, has some ne'er-do-well friends, seven of them. Um, and their names are Pride, Sloth, Gluttony, um, Wrath, um, Greed, and so on. What do you think they stand for? Yeah, <laughs> and why do you think there's seven of them? Seven doesn't 
sins. Seven deadly sins, right. And they encourage every man to spend his time partying in various ways. Um, but then, fortunately, there's seven um, other uh, friends of every man. He doesn't like them as much because they're, they're, they're party poopers. But as things kind of get bad, they start giving him really good advice. Um, and they have names like Faith and Hope and Charity, um, Puritan names, the kinds of names you'll find in um, really in 19th century America. Um, because the Puritans wanted their children to stand for those things. So what do you think faith stands for in this allegory? Good. Yeah, see, see, no trick questions here. And hope? And charity? Good. Um, Bunyan, after Spencer, um, has a great uh, late 17th century book called Pilgrim's Progress. Um, what's the name of the pr protagonist? Do you know Emily? Christian. Christian. What do you think he stands for? what it would be the, the Christian who is a pilgrim in this world. And Christian is trying to get to a place called the Heavenly City, which stands for um, the Heavenly City. <laughs> and um, as he's going there, he meets, um, he gets advice from people about how to get there, and some of that advice seems not so good. For example, he gets advice from someone called Mr. Worldly Wise. Um, what do you think Mr. Worldly Wise stands for? Wisdom. See, this really, it's, it's easier than you think. Um, and at one point he gets trapped in um, a bog, which is called the Slough of Despond. Um, and he's all depressed and he can't get out of this alone. But fortunately, a Mr. Holdfast comes along and he holds fast to Mr. Holdfast, um, who encourages him to have faith that he'll get to the heavenly city. And Mr. Holdfast gets him out of the Slav Despond. He also goes through um, a market that's being had, which is called Vanity and Fair, um, where we get the name of the magazine as well as the great novel by Thackeray. And in Vanity Fair, people are buying and selling things that do you think they have real value? The things in Vanity Fair? Not so much. Um, so these are all very, very obvious allegories. The problem with allegory, even in the hands of Bunyan, who's totally great, or in Every Man, which is also um, largely great as a play. The problem with it is it gets boring really fast because um, it just feels like it's um, kind of very obvious um, uh, philosophical, um, not analysis, but simply illustration of obvious morals. Um, like no one is going to say to themselves, oh, Mr. Worldly Wise says I should do this. That sounds like a good idea. If you were Christian, you know, wouldn't life be great if um, you knew the names of the people who were giving you good and bad advice? If you knew what their what their allegorical functions were, life would be a lot easier. Um, so the problem with allegory is it tends to be really boring um, unless it's done really, really well. But to be done really, really well, what that means is that allegories have to be construed doubtfully. And the reason they have to be considered doubtfully is because it should make a difference for you to understand what someone might be standing for and why. And it should make a difference for you to understand that one thing can look like another. Um, 
it's almost there in the name of Mr. Worldly Wise. That is, you go to, imagine you're in a David Lynch movie and you go to a party and you meet Mr. Wise. And you think, oh, wow, Mr. Wise, I should take his advice. But then the tragic ending is you say, but I always followed what Mr. Wise said. And someone says, ah, but did you ever ask Mr. Wise's first name? You say, well, I know, I always called him Mr. Wise. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, you hear on your deathbed, that his full name is Mr. Worldly Wise. You know, oh no, if only I'd known, then you die. Um, <laughs> that would be bad. Um, but that would be more interesting to find out that, that Wise's name was actually Worldly Wise. Um, Spencer's allegories are absolutely interesting because Spencer is interested in not only, and as we get farther and farther in The Fairy Queen, not even primarily in what things stand for, but he's interested in the things themselves. Um, he's interested in the presence of the person, as in Milton. Um, love, sweetness, goodness in her person shined. That stuff is right here. It's not that she stands for abstract love and abstract sweetness and abstract goodness. Here is a loving, sweet, good person, a human being. And it's the relation of the human being to yourself. It's a relation of people to each other that ultimately counts. And somehow the allegory will rise out of that in Spencer. But that's why it can be hard to understand and why there can be interpretive debates. So he says, okay, I'm trying to forestall that here. Knowing how doubtfully all allegories may be construed, and this book of mine, which I've entitled The Fairy Queen, being a continued allegory or dark conceit. Famous phrase. Um, you will remember the metaphysical conceit. A conceit is basically an extended metaphor. Um, it's a conception that you keep consistent over a long period of time. So metaphysical conceit, for example, in John Donne, <coughs> is to compare his relation to his wife to the two legs of a compass. And then he then he um, unpacks that, and it works in a whole lot of ways. Um, that is that there's a perfect circle that a compass makes, and you return to where you begun, and that's what love does. And also, you grow erect as you get closer to the person you're in love with. That's two completely different aspects of a compass, which fit together perfectly and, and, um, and work really well as a description of love. That's called a conceit. Um, this conceit, this dark conceit of allegory, is you want it to be consistent. You want the interpretation to be consistent over hundreds of pages, even though you're getting wrapped up in the story. And the consistency of what the story is about may start seeming doubtful or dark. But he says, so I have thought good as well for avoiding of jealous opinions and misconstructions as also for your better light in reading thereof, that is to make it easier for you to read, and because you commanded me to do it, being so by you commanded, to discover, that is to uncover, to discover unto you the general intention and meaning which in the whole course thereof I have fashioned, um, hang on to that word fashioned, without expressing of any particular purposes or by accidents therein occasioned. So I'm going to give you the most important structural outline. There's a lot of little adventures and little um, stuff that happens in the course of this book, but I'm not going to talk about them here. That is, those accidents that occur, those, those um, little bits of plot um, 
divagation. The general end, therefore, of all the book is to fashion, there it is again, to fashion a gentleman or noble person in virtuous and gentle discipline. Um, so gentle here is a much stronger word than it is for us. It means an aristocratic person, a noble person. So gentle means noble here. Which, for that I have conceived, should be most plausible and pleasing, being colored with an historical fiction, the which the most part of men delight to read, rather for variety of manner, manner than for the profit of the example, and sample means example, I chose the history of King Arthur. So I wanted to show how to become noble, how to become just a perfect person. And um, if I wrote this as a treatise, everyone would be bored out of their minds. But everyone likes stories, especially of King Arthur. So I decided to make this the story of King Arthur, who would demonstrate how to be perfect, because he was the perfect king. Um, he is most fit for the excellency of his person being made famous by many men's former works, uh, Mallory especially, but many other works of Arthurian literature. Is anyone taking Arthurian literature this semester? Um, it would have been an interesting comparison. Um, so at any rate, um, uh, he's made famous by many men's former works and also furthest from the damage of envy and suspicion of present time. That is, no one is saying, oh, Arthur, he thinks he's so cool. Um, that tells you something about court life at present. That is, people, um, Elizabeth is queen. Um, some people are very angry at the favoritism she shows other people and envious of each other. Court life in the 16th and 17th century was a nightmare. And it was a nightmare of infighting and of jockeying for position and of hypocrisy and of viciousness. Um, that's where we get the word courtesy from court life, and that's why courtesy has a sense sometimes of falsity. That is, you show courtesy even though, as you'll see, you're about to cut off someone's head. You do it very courteously, almost like bold Sir Robin. Courteous Sir, um, Sir Article. Um, you know bold Sir Robin? I guess Monty Python is bound to come up <coughs> over and over. Bravely he beat a bold retreat. Um, so article will very courteously cut off some people's heads. Um, so court life is a nightmare. You know, it's like Washington life now, but more so. And that's a dig at that when he says, well, as for Arthur, um, he's free of the envy and jealousy that you see everywhere now. Um, so, and in doing this, in which, in doing all this, I have followed all the antique poets historical. First, Homer who in the person of Agamemnon and Ulysses, that is Odysseus, hath, now I'll just say it is ensampled. Our word example and our word sample do have the same root, so that's a sample is an example of something. Um, so first Homer, who in the persons of Agamemnon and Ulysses hath ensampled a good governor and a virtuous man. Um, the one in his Ilias, in the Iliad, Agamemnon is supposed to be an example of a good leader which is kind of laughable, um, the other in his Odysseus. Um, so he's saying, look, all the great works of literature are like allegories. That is, um, if you think certain characters are good characters, it's because they stand, because they embody certain virtues of goodness, generosity or um, um, strength or courage or whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, you know, I was just actually, that came up to my mind when I was reading this. Do, do you think he actually believes what he's saying there? Just sort of that, this is the question to ask yourself over and over again in The Fairy Queen. Does he believe the official thing he's saying? It's also the question asked over and over again in Paradise Lost. Um, as we will see, and as some of you already know, the first question, the first real question you have to ask about Paradise Lost is, is Satan the hero of Paradise Lost or not? Is Milton on Satan's side in Paradise Lost or not? Um, so the question, do they believe what they seem to be saying? The very fact that they're not saying it straight out, that... Um, that Spencer is alerting you at the start to the idea that allegories are easily misinterpreted. That might be an ironic alert. I'll give you an example of this. Coleridge, um, at the um, beginning of the 19th century, wrote a hugely vicious poem. Not a great poem, but it's hugely vicious, violent put-down of the current prime minister. Um, and at the time, you could be sort of like Russia today, you could be arrested and thrown in jail for doing such a thing, or Singapore. You could be arrested and thrown in jail for doing such a thing. And Coleridge published this, which seemed to show considerable courage on his part. But back in the 19th century, what would often happen, actually up until the 1970s or 80s, up until computer typesetting came along, people would start printing books, and then they'd realize there were errors, and there was something called an erratum sheet. And what an erratum sheet did was it came with the book. It was a separate um, sheet of paper printed after the book was printed, but then slipped in, often pasted into the book, with a list of page numbers and errors on those page numbers that you should fix, and that would then get fixed in later editions. Um, and what you're supposed to do with an erratum sheet was, was take it out of the book, go to the various pages that are described, and with a pencil make the corrections on the erratum sheet. So Coleridge uses this very cleverly. So the erratum sheet is this violent and vicious attack on um, Pitt. Um, and then the, the erratum sheet says, on page 46, which says, Mr. Pitt is a viper who doesn't deserve to live another day and um, ought to be crushed the way um, the head of the snake was crushed by the Son of Man, um, except that he's even worse than Satan. Please correct that to, Mr. Pitt is a very good man. Um, <laughs> The result of which, that important correction, the result of which is not only does he give barely plausible deniability, oh, that was just a typo, um, but he also calls attention to it. <coughs> so the very place where he says, don't misunderstand me, is actually the place where um, the thing he says you shouldn't understand is introduced to understanding. In general, think about normal conversation. Whenever anyone says, I don't mean to say that you're um, being a jerk, <coughs> what they're actually saying is, I actually think you're being a jerk. Um, don't get me wrong means the thing they're about to deny is in their minds, and um, it should be there. You've all had the experience of someone saying, don't get me wrong, when you weren't getting them wrong, when you thought they were saying something kind of nice, you know, um, someone says, boy, that's pretty good. And then they say to you, don't get me wrong. By saying it's pretty good, I don't, mean, I don't mean anything negative. I really do think it's pretty good. You said to yourself, oh, wait, I didn't realize that when they said it was pretty good, they were realizing that they might, that might have a negative connotation. So we've all been in the experience where someone, where someone <coughs> tries or seems to be trying to prevent you from thinking something, and by doing that actually makes you think it for the first time. 
Um, it's a frequent experience in love relationships. Um, it's like, uh, I don't do this much anymore, but it's like when Buffy says to Angel after they have sex, I love you. And he says, love you too. Um, and uh, suddenly, you know, she wants to take that as real love, but no, don't get me wrong, love you too. Um, and then he goes off and kills some people. Um, all right. So, um, there we go. So then there's Virgil, um, whose like invention was, was to do in the person of Aeneas. <coughs> that is, Aeneas is supposed to stand or give you an example. And really the important part here is the word example. An example of um, good governance and virtue. After him, Ariosto, comprised them both in his Orlando, one of the great um, works like the Fairy Queen was the Italian work Orlando Furioso. Orlando is the Italian name for Roland. So Ariosto wrote about Roland, um, and Spencer has a lot of praise for Ariosto. And lately, Tasso, a very recent Italian poet um, whose book um, Jerusalem Liberated um, is a book about the Crusades, Lately, Tasso discovered, dissevered them again. That is, Tasso made um, good governance and um, virtue separate beings the way Homer had done. He dissevered them again and formed both parts in two persons, namely that part which they in philosophy called ethics or virtues of a private man colored in his Rinaldo, the other part politics or politice in his Godfredo. So those are characters in Jerusalem Liberated. Um, by ensample of which excellent poets, so again, there's that ensample, by ensample of which excellent poets, I labor to portray, portrait, portraked in Arthur before he was king, the image of a brave knight, perfected in his twelve private moral virtues, as Aristotle hath devised, the which is the purpose of these first twelve books, of which, thank goodness, we only have six, which, if I find to be well accepted, I may be perhaps encouraged to frame the other part of politic virtues in his person after he came to be king. So now we know where this is going to go. Um, had Spencer lived, first Arthur before he's king, then Arthur after he becomes king of England. We will see him as a private person and then as a public person. Um, to some, he goes on, I know this method will seem displeasant, which had rather have good discipline delivered plainly in way of precepts or sermon at large, as they use, than cloudily enwrapped in allegorical devices. Um, then the last thing, uh, I guess we have three minutes, is Cynthia, um, the fairy queen. Um, all of those in one way or another are going to represent Queen Elizabeth. So um, this poem is about how Arthur ultimately, although very little of it is actually written, is going to be how Arthur and Gloriana, the fairy queen, come together. And that's going to stand for a union in fiction, in imagination, of King Arthur with Queen Elizabeth. Uh, Raleigh was in love with Elizabeth. Lots of other people were. Raleigh, in a poem to her, called her Cynthia, the goddess of the moon, the goddess of chastity, um, Spencer will sometimes do likewise as a tip of the hat to Raleigh. Um, then he um, says a little farther down the page then, so in the person of Prince Arthur, I set forth magnificence in particular, which virtue 
is, I'm going to skip, is the perfection of all the rest and containeth in it them all. So magnificence is when all the great virtues come together, you get magnificence. Um, and then he says, but of each virtue, I have a particular knight who stands for that virtue. Um, down a little bit further, the first of the knight of the red cross in whom I express holiness, the second of Sir Guyon in whom I set forth temperance, the third of Britta Martis, a lady knight in whom I picture chastity. Um, but because the beginning seemeth abrupt, I should tell you the background. And the background is that there's a feast in the court of Gloriana, and various knights present themselves in order to do various um, uh, knightly quests. And whenever someone comes in and says, help, help, I need a knight for my quest, one of the knights volunteers and goes forth. And so then we hear that a clownish man came in and wanted to do um, the first quest, but then it turned out the armor that belonged to the Red Cross Knight fit him perfectly, so Gloriana sent him on his way. That's the Red Cross Knight. Um, then we hear about the other knights, and this gives you just a very quick um, orientation to the Fairy Queen. Um, two things I want to say. Each book of the Fairy Queen of the Six has a little introductory page of... Um, of uh, kind of um, setting up of the issues there, um, and then the poem begins proper a page later. So um, you have to read those introductory parts. There's six or seven stanzas each usually. But then the Red Cross Knight, we see him plunged in, in medias race, a gentle knight was pricking on a plane. So that's the first thing we hear about the Red Cross Knight, is that he's pricking, that is spurring his horse on a plane. He's running down He's, he's, he's riding, cantering down a plane, um, spurring his horse onward. And that's where the story proper begins. The more important thing that we'll be thinking about is, in Arthur, in Magnificence, 12 virtues all combine. That assumes that virtues are consistent with each other. That is to say, it assumes that if you have one virtue you um, can there's still room for every other virtue, that virtues don't contradict each other. That's going to turn out, Arthur, um, Aristotle wasn't sure that was true. He had this idea of the harmony of the virtues, but the question was, are the virtues really harmonious? Do they harmonize with each other? An easy way to see what it means for them not to be harmonious is to think about the vices. So are vices harmonious? Can you have all seven vices simultaneously. And here's a way of asking it. Can you both be slothful and um, uh, lustful? And um, everyone in their own life has experienced both these things. You feel lazy, you don't want to get up. Um, you want to go to bed early, you don't want to um, uh, you really just want to be left alone. And everyone's also experienced lust. And sometimes you've experienced them in a kind of unpleasant opposition to each other. That is, um, it takes energy to be lustful. But sloth is just wanting to be left alone. Um, depending on how old you are, you may have had this experience at parties, depending on how much beer you've drunk. Um, but being lustful and being slothful simultaneously, they don't actually fit well together. And um, it may be 
that there's no way to embody all seven sins in one person. Um, it's hard to picture how to do it. If that's true, it may also be as a kind of mirror image or negative of the sins that you can't get all the virtues embodied in one person either. Um, and in particular, the second virtue is temperance. And the first virtue is the third virtue is chastity. So, think about whether temperance and chastity can go together. Um, I'm I'm chaste within reason. So is that chastity or not? Um, that's the kind of question that's going to come up. Spencer asserts in the letter that of course they can all go together in Arthur. Well, let's look at Arthur. Let's see whether we find in Arthur chastity or temperance or holiness or what, as he comes in to these books. As you'll see, he will come in in book nine of each one of the books, at least for a while. All right, so have fun. Really, have fun. Don't look at the notes unless you really need to, but don't look at the notes. Don't look at the notes out of a sense of duty. Um, look at them if you're just, if you like something and you want to know more about it. Mm -hmm. I always thought it was kind of the same kind of allegory that you 